Thank you, Todd and Heidi, for that ministry in music. This morning, we come to a section in the book of John where we encounter the seventh and final I am statement of Jesus. The first six I am statements, let me remind you of them, teach in a very pithy way a certain truth about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, about his life, his ministry. In John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall not hunger or thirst. A metaphor to teach about the satisfaction that we experience in Jesus Christ. John 8.12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. John 10.7, Jesus therefore said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. John 11.25, excuse me, John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. John 11.25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Today, we look at John chapter 15. The key verse is verse 5. John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. A very pithy and important truth. That he likens himself unto a vine, and us as branches. And as a vine produces fruit, so do we as branches of him produce fruit in our lives. Without being united to him, we can do nothing. On the surface, that's very simple. As you work through this passage, it gets a lot more complex. But we want to keep the simple truth before us, because that is where the essence of the passage is to be had. But we're going to look at some of the more problematic aspects of the passage, and then try to drive this theme home. So the theme is, In being united to Christ, we will bear much spiritual fruit. That's the overall lesson. In being united to Christ, we will bear much spiritual truth. Fruit. First, Jesus teaches that he is the vine and the disciples are the branches. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. That's the very basic metaphor that's being presented. In John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine. The true vine. The true vine as opposed to the mere image or symbol of a vine. Now, this may not mean a great deal to us, this whole metaphor of a vine. But to the Israelites, it carried much, much uh, truth associated with it, because there is a huge informing theology 
about the vine. In other words, there are many, many Old Testament passages in which Israel is pictured as a vine or a vineyard. Turn with me to just one of them. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Keep your finger here because we're coming back. But Isaiah chapter 5. I love to hear the rest, uh, rest uh, of those pages. It's uh, great that you're turning with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5. And if you look with me in verse 7. For here, the imagery is explained. Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. That is a consistent metaphor in the Old Testament, that the vineyard represents the house of Israel. Now, notice what it says about this vineyard, starting at verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. And he dug it all around, removed his stones, and planted it with the choicest Vine, the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than what I have done unto it? Why then? I expected it to produce good grapes. Did it produce worthless ones? So now, let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will move its hedge. It will be consumed. I will break down its walls and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge, ch- charge the clouds to rain. No rain on it. Israel produced rotten Grapes, it says. Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, behold, a cry of distress. That is the rotten grapes in the analogy. It is the bloodshed, the unrighteousness, the unholiness that this vineyard produced. Jesus said, I am the true vine. If you notice, it says in verse 4 of Isaiah 54, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Why then? I expect that it produced good grapes, did it produce worthless grapes. Verse 2, He dug it all around, removed the stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And yet, it produced bad grapes. Jesus said, I am the vine. I am the choice vine of the nation of Israel. Look again at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah, his delightful plant. You'll remember that Jesus comes from the house and tribe of Judah. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. 
Jesus is the one who is going to be this vine that is going to produce righteousness in the nation of Israel. He says, I am the true vine. Not just a symbol of the vine. I am that vine. And true in the sense that he is, he is faithful. So the point is, Jesus, who is of the tribe of Judah, is the true vine, for he himself is godly, and so those who are united to him will be godly as well. Second point. The disciples that have a living relationship to Christ will produce much fruit. The disciples that have a living relationship to Christ will produce much fruit. Look at verse 5 of John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. That's the basic application of the analogy. Secondly, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. So, looking at that simple phrase. First question is, what does it mean to abide in Christ? What does it mean to abide in Christ? Here is a very simple passage that people make incredibly complex. And one of the things they do is dwell on this word abide. And there is what is known as the higher Christian movement. Uh, sometimes we think of it as the holiness movement, Keswick movement, sometimes it's called, of this victorious Christian living, uh, a sinlessness that can be reached in this life. So to abide is this mystical incredible, unique relationship to Jesus Christ that only a handful of people have. Well, there's nothing at all in the book of John that supports that kind of theology. In fact, it's quite the opposite. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Turn with me to John chapter 6. Unfortunately, we have another metaphor. John is filled with it. We have another metaphor. John six fifty four. Jesus speaking. He just fed the multitude. He said he was the bread of life. John six fifty four. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him up to the last day. So we're talking about those who have eternal life, not just a handful of incredibly unique, committed Christians. We're talking about people that have eternal life. Verse 55. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Okay. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, metaphorically speaking, it means to drink his blood and eat his flesh. Again, we've got another metaphor. What does it mean to eat his blood and drink his flesh? It simply means to believe in him. To believe in him. To partake of him. To derive spiritual nourishment from him. Every communion, we symbolically eat his flesh, drink his blood. We don't literally eat his flesh and drink his blood when we take communion. What we do is express our faith. In Jesus Christ, through the partaking of communion, we recognize that through his death, through his shed blood, 
we have eternal life. It is simply another way of talking about being born again, of having saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now turn with me back to John 15. We're going to be flipping all over the place this morning. So you need to keep a bulletin or something in John 15 as we go to other passages. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask what you wish, and it shall be done to you. So what does it mean for his words to abide in us? Turn with me to John chapter 5. John 5. Starting at verse 38. John 5.38, and you do not have his word abiding in you. It's the exact same word. All these words for abide are the exact same words. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in him whom he sent. To abide in his word is to believe in Jesus Christ. It keeps coming back to that basic concept, to believe in Jesus Christ. Those people who believe in Jesus Christ are said to abide in Him. You have life in Him if you believe in Jesus Christ. It's another way of talking about being born again. John 1.12 But as many as received Him, to them gave you power to become the children of God, who are born not of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The point is, those people who are spiritually united to Jesus Christ, who actually are born again, who actually have life, will bear fruit. So now we have to ask the question, what fruit is it that we produce? There are two answers that are given. Sometimes, fruit in the Bible speaks of converts. So we bear fruit when we have reproduced ourselves, when we have made disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. When others have come to place their faith in Jesus Christ. If that's the case, what this passage is teaching is that those who believe in Jesus will propagate and will produce disciples. However, that's not how the fruit is being used in this passage. It's the fruit of godly character. It's the fruit of holiness. It's the fruit of a transformed life. It's the fruit of good deeds. It is the fruit of the Spirit, if you will. How do we know that? How do we know that? Well, go back with me to Isaiah chapter 5. The informing theology of the Old Testament teaches us this. I'm looking at just one passage. There are numerous vineyard passages in the Old Testament. Another noteworthy one would be Psalm 80. If you want to go home and look it up, and you can read Psalm 80 at length. But in Isaiah chapter 5, if you look at verse 4, it says, I expected it to produce good grapes. When I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So, the fruit is these worthless Grapes. Look with me at verse 7, how these worthless grapes are described. 
For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah is delightful plant. Thus you look for justice, but behold bloodshed, righteousness, and behold a cry of distress. The rotten fruit is not the converts. The rotten fruit is this conduct of unrighteousness, of unholiness, of distress. And it is true not just in this passage in Isaiah chapter 5. It is true in every vineyard passage in the Old Testament. The fruit is always the ungodliness of the lives. Now turn with me back to John chapter 15. Sorry we're going to so many places this morning, but it's probably an image that is much less familiar to us than it was to those whom Jesus gave it. We also know that this is talking about spiritual fruit as opposed to converts from the very context of John 15 itself. If you remember with me, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no control. So the fruit of the Spirit are these life-transforming characteristics most notably of love, joy, and peace. Love, joy, and peace. And notice how they are discussed in our text. First, John fourteen twenty seven. John fourteen twenty seven. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, let it not be fearful. I give you peace. Look at John fifteen nine. Just as the Father has loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Look at John 15, 11. These things I have spoken unto you that my joy may be in you. He talks about peace. He talks about love. He talks about joy. These are the fruit of the Spirit. So he's talking about bearing godly characteristics by being united to Jesus Christ. Thus, in being united to Christ, by faith we abide in Him, and He produces the fruit of godly character in our lives. Now, verse 8. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. If you look at John 15, 1 and 2, it says, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it will bear more fruit. So now we have a third aspect of this metaphor. Jesus is the vine. We are its branches. Now the third element is God the Father is introduced as the vine dresser or the farmer. The caretaker of the vineyard. He keeps this vineyard in check. He keeps it producing fruit. And so, we find in this metaphor that there are three types of branches. There are branches A that bear no fruit. There are branches B that bear some fruit. And there are branches C which bear a great amount of fruit. The branches that bear some fruit 
verse 2. He prunes. Notice verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I'll come back to that. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. He prunes it. He cuts it back so that it becomes even more fruitful. How does he do that? What's the analogy there? You know, we know what pruning is. You got this thing, you cut things off. Well, how does that happen biblically? Well, it happens through the Word of God. Notice verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I spoke to you. You don't catch it in English, but in the Greek there is a play on words. For the word to prune is the word to clean. The word to prune is the word to clean. The way that he cleans us is by his word. His word does the work of taking away that which is unproductive and replacing it with that which is productive. In John 15, verse 3, it says, You are already clean. God has already done this work, he says to his immediate disciples. You're already clean. You've already been paired. The dead branches have already been removed from you. In other words, what Jesus is saying to the eleven at this point is, you are my true disciples. God has done his work of pruning. He's referring to Judas. In John chapter 13, you don't need to turn there, but remember as Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. Jesus said, you're clean, but not all of you. And the next verse makes it clear he's talking about Judas. And John chapter 15 says, you're already clean. Because... Judas has been removed. Judas is not there. Judas has been sent on his way. He is out betraying Jesus. Okay, now hang with me. There is the branch or disciple that bears no fruit. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The Father takes away that branch that bears no fruit. That branch is going to be destroyed. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So, what does that mean? What are we to understand from that verse? This passage has generally been understood in three ways. First, the burned branches are Christians who have lost their salvation. Okay, that's how some people take this particular passage. These are people that don't abide, don't remain in their relationship to Jesus Christ. These are people who are born again, 
but walk away, they lose their salvation, and they're destroyed. The second way that this is interpreted is that it refers not to Christians, but to their rewards. Not to their salvation, but judgment about their deeds. Such as in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, where it says that those deeds that are not worthy, you bring forth good deeds of gold and silver and precious stones, or you bring forth wood, hay, and stubble. The wood, hay, and stubble that's burned up, the rest remains. It is true that the Bible uses that imagery about rewards. However, in this passage, it's not the works that are burned up. It's the branches that are burned up. It's people that are burned up. I would submit to you, which is another common interpretation, thirdly, that the burned branches are professing Christians who were never truly saved. They're like Judas. They are dead branches, not connected to the life that is in Christ. They are spiritually dead. Therefore, they are punished with eternal damnation. They have no vital union to the vine. You've got to go back to this illustration again. It's talking about if you have union with Christ, you're going to be fruitful. If you don't have union with Christ, you are not going to be fruitful. There are people who profess to have union with Christ who don't. Judas being a prime example. Judas is not a person who was born again and lost his salvation. Judas is referred to in John chapter 17 as a son of perdition, a son of destruction. Judas never was saved. Long before he denied the Lord Jesus Christ, he was stealing from the treasury. Jesus knew right from the get-go. He says, have not I chosen all of you and one of you are a devil? Referring to Judas. He knew from the moment that he chose him to be a disciple that he wasn't a true follower of Jesus Christ. He wasn't a person who was saved and lost his salvation. He was a person who never truly ever was saved. I know we're turning a lot, but turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. The author of 1 John is the very same author of the book of John that we are now in. 1 John is written after the book of John and deals with this whole subject at much greater length because the purpose of the book of John is given to us in John chapter 20. These things are written that you may know. Uh, no, excuse me. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you have life in his name. That's why John is written. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life in his name. First John is written for this reason. First John says that you may know that you are the children of God. The first is to believe. The second is to know. Now, first John 2, 18 and 19. First John 2, 18, starting uh, chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have risen. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. They were not really of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They went out from us. But they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They left. But they left because they were never really ever apart. They left not because they lost their salvation. They left because they never really were saved. But notice down to verse 23. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you had from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and the Father. Exact same word again. It is the message of Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 1. If that message of Jesus Christ, if you believe that, you abide in the Father, the Father abides in you, you abide in the Son, the Son abides in you, you have a relationship to the other disciples. If you don't believe that, you won't remain with the Father, you won't remain with the Son, you won't remain with the other disciples. It isn't that you lost it. It is never that you were never really a part. Never really a part. So, I know this is getting confusing. I'm going to try to bring it together at the end. Thirdly, the disciples must have a real vital living relationship to Jesus Christ in order to produce fruit. Back to 1 John chapter, excuse me, John chapter 15, verse 5. This probably would have been a good message to have a handout. But John 15, 5. What I've done is looked at this verse in three sections. The first is, I am the vine, you are the branches. The second is, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Now the third is, apart from me you can do nothing. The only way to produce the fruit of a godly life is to be united to Jesus Christ. Verse 4 of John 15. Abide in me, I am you. As the, father, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither you unless you abide in me. Just as a vine that is not, the branch is not connected to the vine, is not going to produce fruit. So too, the disciple, professed disciple, who isn't really united to Jesus Christ, isn't going to produce fruit either. It's one reason Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. It's why he's going to say, by this you shall prove to be my disciples. It's the fruit of being connected to Jesus Christ. If you're connected to him, you're going to bear fruit. If you're not connected to him, you're not going to bear fruit. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch dries up. And they gather them and cast them into fire. They are burned. The person who is united to Christ by faith, will and can produce all good fruit. Rather than to be cast away as dead, they will be helped and proved to be productive. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Here is one of those great verses that people take out of context all the time. This is not a blank check. This is not saying, believe anything and you're going to get it. 
This is not an invitation to ask God to give you the winning lottery ticket and go out and buy a lottery ticket. You're not going to find it in this verse. How do you know that? How do you know that? Well, if you, if you mark your Bible, circle the words, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. And draw a line to verse 5. The end of the verse where it says, for apart from me you can do nothing. For apart from me you can do nothing. Now, let's start with that one. Because it's less controversial and it's easy to understand. What is Jesus saying when he says, apart from me you can do nothing? Do we understand that in the absolute sense? A person that is not united to Jesus Christ by faith, can they truly do nothing? Can they eat? Can they walk? Can they talk? Can they purchase a lottery ticket? There are tons of things that people who are not born again can do. So then why does it say in verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing? Because it's talking about fruit bearing. Fruit bearing. Apart from Jesus Christ, you can't bear fruit. You can't live a godly life. You can't manifest the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, gentleness, faith, meekness, temperance, self-control. It is impossible. It's not an absolute statement. It's a statement directly related to the fruit. You can do nothing when it comes to bearing fruit. That's pretty obvious, right? Shake your head. Okay? Verse 7 is the opposite of that. Verse uh, 7 is... If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you is in connection with the fruit bearing. Just as you can do nothing, now you can do anything when it comes to bearing fruit. You ask God and he will produce in you. The father who is the pruner, the father who is the husbandman, the father who is the gardener, farmer who takes care of the vineyard is going to produce fruit in you. You want fruit. You want more fruit. Ask God for it. And he will make you more productive. He will make you more Christ-like. God is glorified by those who profess faith in Christ and live godly lives. Verse 8. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. When we bear a lot of fruit, the Father is glorified. Why? Why is God the Father glorified by our fruit bearing? Answer, A, because 
He's producing it in us by pruning us through his word. So he deserves the praise, the honor, and glory. Why are we progressing in our holiness? It's because of the work of God the Father who sends the Son, who sends the Holy Spirit. The triune God is at work within us. Why is God glorified? Because it was his purpose in sending his Son. That we would be a transformed people. That we would live godly and holy lives. And not only that, at the end of verse 8. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. If you're united to Jesus Christ, your life's going to be changed. If you're not united to Jesus Christ, your life's not going to be changed. How do you know that you're born again today? How do you know that you're a child of God? It's the fruit that's being produced in your life. It is the godliness that is being created. It is the way in which you have moved from a place of hating God's commands to loving God's commands. And so, we continue to experience Christ's love as we follow his commands. Verses 9 and 10. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. comes back to believing the teaching of the word of God. Now verse 11. Why did he tell us all of this? Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. The intent of this parable, this metaphor, is to bring joy to our hearts and lives. The joy is in knowing, A, that we are united to Jesus Christ. B, that in being united to Jesus Christ, our lives are being changed. That is a wonderful truth. Especially in times of being discouraged. In times of being a doubter. In times of being uncertain. Remember the people to whom this was written. The people to whom this was initially said. It was said to a Philip. How can we know the way? It was said to a Thomas. Unless I, believe, unless I see the, the prints of his hands and side, I will not believe. Jesus said to them very clearly, Every one of you is clean. Every one of you has been sifted by the word of God. Every one of you believes. And yet, look at how far they need to come. It is a great joy in knowing that God prunes us, that God develops us, that God matures us, that God is long-suffering toward us. God is working with us who are united to Jesus Christ by faith. He's going to produce righteousness in us. And the one thing that we can all be confident of, every single one of us, is one day we are going to be experientially without sin. Right now we are positionally without sin. Meaning that God looks upon us as righteous, although we really aren't righteous in and of ourselves. We sin. But there's coming a day in which you and I will no longer sin, period. 
when we are in the presence of God, we won't sin anymore. There is nothing there that defiles. Nothing that breaks in, enters, and steals. There is nothing unholy. There is nothing that defames. God is at work in us. Producing what is ultimately going to be that final and great fruit in our lives of absolute sinlessness when we are in his presence. So, what are we to get from this passage? First, that we are to believe in Jesus. And by believing in Jesus, our lives are going to be changed. And without believing in Jesus, our lives will never be changed. It is the message and lesson of fruit bearing. There is a progression in the book of John. A progression that moves from Jesus being the light, the revealer of truth, to Jesus being the bread. That by eating him you can have life. To him being the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. Being the doorway to heaven and the entrance to his abode. As being the resurrection and the life. The one who is ultimately going to take us to God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. To now, he is, the vine, he is the vine that produces holiness and righteousness in our lives. It's the last step. Jesus is teaching us about his atonement. Jesus is teaching us about his sacrifice. The great joy of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is that he is making us new people. He is transforming us. Jesus did far more than simply die on the cross to take away our sins. When I say far more than simply that, that's a great thing to be sure. That our sins are being forgiven. But he did more than die for us so that we could be a sinful people who are forgiven. He died for us so that we are a sinful people that could be made righteous. That we would be a sinful people that are living for him. That we be a sinful people who are now becoming followers of Jesus Christ. If you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, if you are truly born again, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you have his life flowing through your veins. You're going to be raised from the dead. You're going to be in his presence forever and ever. You have everlasting life. And this life is transforming our lives. By being united to Jesus Christ, who is the true vine, who is the righteous one, who only produces good fruit in his own life, now is giving us the nutrients, the vitamins, the help that we need to produce good fruit in our lives. A holiness of character. And he is sending the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, to help produce that fruit in our lives. And the Father is pruning us by his word. As we dwell in his word, John 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. As the word of God is believed and obeyed, we become more holy. But we will never become more holy without first being united to Jesus Christ by faith.
we will in vain seek to live holy lives apart from union with Christ. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. But with faith, we can cry out to God and ask Him to produce more good fruit in our lives. And He delights to answer that prayer. And He will help us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. And I ask that You would help us to be people who are bearing much fruit, not just some fruit. Lord, all of us that know you as the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior can see small ways in which our lives are changing. New attitudes towards your word and towards others. Lord, I pray that we would see these things not just in small ways, but in huge ways. Lord, uh, do a mighty work in us. May we become more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be more holy. May we be more righteous. May we be more loving. May we be more faithful. And Lord, help us to pray about these things. And to realize that you delight to give us these things. Lord, may we be more dependent upon you. May we foster the life that we have in Jesus Christ. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.